When I was a college student, I took a course once in the philosophy of science, and one of the textbooks that we read at that time was entitled The Metaphysical Foundations for Modern Science. And I remember as I read that book, I was awakened for the first time to a host of assumptions that I had been making all of my life about science and about living that I never thought of with respect to what was behind them or underneath them. We have a tendency in our day to make a sharp distinction between science or physics and philosophy, engaging in the quest for metaphysical knowledge, as if these were two completely separate categories of investigation that never really meet. But the reality is that in the scientific world, all kinds of assumptions are being made constantly that are really philosophical in nature. Let me give a simple illustration of that. When you go to the doctor and you're not feeling well and you're looking for diagnosis and treatment of whatever it is that ails you, one of the concerns that you have and one of the concerns that your doctor has is in trying to determine what caused this malfunction or your illness. It's the same thing that you encounter when you go and take your car into the mechanic. He wants to find the cause of the problem. So much of what we're concerned about in the realm of real science is the whole question of causality or of cause and effect. Now, the underlying assumptions behind this question are assumptions that were challenged with great depth in the 17th century. Descartes, whom we've already introduced as the leading figure of 17th century rationalism, was very much concerned about this question. He wasn't simply concerned about epistemology and self-consciousness that we've already looked at, but he was interested in how things relate to each other in terms of causality. Descartes asked questions like this, how is it that I can think about doing something and then translate that thought into action. For example, if I decide right now to take this piece of chalk and throw it to Roger here in the first row, and then Roger decides to throw it back to me, and I catch it without error, of course, as we have this little exchange, how is it that I translated the idea or the thought of an action into a physical response, into a physical action. I decided to throw the chalk, he caught it, and he threw it back, and I decided to catch it, and that thought generated an action of response. So that we can see that thoughts can result in actions, and conversely, actions can give rise to thoughts. Now, we then ask the question, what is an action and what is a thought? And maybe we don't think about thought that much, 
But we have to, at some point, ask ourselves the question, what is thought? Is thought merely a physiological response with synapses and that sort of thing? Or are ideas non-physical? We're asking about the relationship between mind and matter. Remember a professor I once had who was asked to give a definition of the difference between mind and matter, and somebody asked him, what is mind? And he said, no matter. And somebody then said, well, what is matter? And he said, never mind. (laughs) So, uh, with that little game, we were left with the conundrum of trying to distinguish between mind and matter or between thought and action. Well, that's the kind of question that occupied the thinking of René Descartes. Now, in order to address that question, he first of all sought to give definition to matter and definition to thought or mind, and seeking the simplest level of distinction between them, Descartes came up with this distinction, that that which is material is extended or has the property of what he called extension, and that which is thought or idea is non-extension. Now, we're not accustomed to thinking in categories like that in the 20th century, but a similar type of distinction is the one that we hear people making frequently between matter and energy. I once had a conversation with a professor of physics at a leading university in America, and he was criticizing my task as a theologian for speaking about God because he said, you know, God talk or language about God is meaningless in the scientific world. You're always talking in abstractions, he said, that can't be materially defined. And I said, well, certainly you can sympathize with my dilemma as a theologian because you have the same difficulty in physics. He said, oh, no, we don't. And I said, well, do you ever talk about energy? And he said, yes. I said, what is it? And he said, well, that's easy. It's the ability to do work. I said, I'm not asking for a functional definition. I'm not asking you what it does or what it can do. I want to know what it is because you guys talk about it as if it were something, had some essence to it. And he said, well, energy is mc squared. I said, again, I'm not interested in its mathematical equivalency. I want you to give me its ontology, a description of its being, since in your language you speak of it as something real, as something that really exists. And then he began to feel something of the weight of the philosophical assumptions that were undergirding his common, ordinary language. Okay, for Descartes, in trying to distinguish between matter and thought, or between thought and action, he used the simple categories of extension. That which is material has extension. That is, it has some size to it, or shape to it, and fills up space, and has some kind of quantitative weight to it. Whereas, That which is immaterial, such as a thought, 
or mind is non-extended, meaning it doesn't take up space and it doesn't have any weight. And when people look at my mind, they're convinced of the truth of that assessment because it doesn't take up much space and is certainly not weighty. But in any case, the question is, if these ideas or these realities of mind and matter are real and they are fundamentally different in their basic substantive makeup, how can they possibly interact with each other? Or how can that which is extended produce an effect or cause an effect that is non-extended? And conversely, how can that which is non-extended or purely mental give rise to extension? or some physical action. He was asking the fundamental question of how causal power functions. And his basic theory was called interactionism. Interactionism, which simply affirms that there is interaction between mind and action, or thought and action. In the process of analyzing this, remember that he was a mathematician. And he was trying to locate the point in our humanity where the transition takes place between thought and action. He was assuming that the transition point is a point I'm using the word for a reason, is a point that can be defined in mathematical terms. How many points do we have on a line? Well, theoretically, according to some people, a finite line can have an infinite number of points on it because a point is merely a mathematical concept where a point sort of hovers between extension and non-extension. A point takes up space, as it were, but has no definite extension or no definite size to it. It's kind of a hybrid between extension and non-extension. So as a mathematician, thinking in mathematical categories, Descartes sought to find the point of interaction within us in what he called the pineal gland at the base of the brain, which is incidentally and interestingly enough subject of all kinds of new modern research about its function medically and biologically. But in any case, what he argued was there is a causal relationship between mind and matter, between thought and action that takes place at a definite point so that a person can think about doing something, the will is then exercised, and as a result of these non-extended faculties, an actual physical response takes place. So what we're saying here is that there is a real causal connection in the world between things. Not only between thought and action, but between thought and other thought, and actions causing equal and opposite reactions, which is part of the the physics of 
that period. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Now, all that assumes that some kind of power is transmitted through creaturely entities. It assumes that it is my power that is generating the tossing of that piece of chalk, I should say, to Roger, and it is his power that throws it back and my power that catches it. Now, as a Christian, the question for Descartes and thinkers of his age is, where does this leave God? Is God to be thought of simply as the ultimate first cause of everything, in terms of like the 18th century deists conceived of God as the great watchmaker in the sky who made the universe like a machine. And he put together all the integrated parts of that machine and then wound up the machine and then let it operate according to its own power, whereby God then is simply the transcendent observer of everything that he starts moving, but then once the action begins, the rest all takes place through the interaction of objects and people and so on in this world. Now you say, well, what's the big deal here? Well, let's jump ahead to the 20th century. I would think it would be a more than safe bet to say that 99% of the people who are alive in the world and even 99% of Christian people in the world today think in terms of the universes operating on a daily basis, on the basis of its own power. The assumption of our modern worldview is somewhat mechanical, namely, that there is such a thing as the laws of nature, which laws operate according to inherent power, that is, power within objects, forces within this world that have built-in power. So that if you, we're going to use this analogy later on when we get to David Hume, if you observe a pool game in progress and you see the one player step up to the table with his cue stick in hand, and he then aims the cue stick at the cue ball, and he moves his arm, issuing in a cue stroke, as it were, a billiard stroke, and the tip of the cue stick then hits the cue ball, and when that happens, what immediately follows is the cue ball begins to move and roll across the table and hopefully hits the intended object ball, which had been at rest. Once the object ball is hit by the cue ball, then a couple of actions take place. The cue ball can carry them off the object ball or spin back or follow forward, depending on what kind of spin you impart to it. And you hope that then the action of the object ball is that it rolls across the table and sinks into the pocket as you intended. So that the player is using his mind he has an intention to carry out a purpose, and so he exercises his force 
on the cue stick, which then imparts force to the cue ball, which in part imparts force to the object ball, which then moves and goes into the pocket. And our assumption is that there's some kind of transfer of energy going on here in this sequence as we observe it. So one thing causes another thing, which causes another thing, which causes another thing. And that that power is real and active. Again, the theologian asks the question, well, does that mean that the universe operates without any assistance from God other than His imparting the initial motion or the initial power to His universe at the time of creation? Now, again, that basic assumption that we make every time we watch a pool game or watch other series of events that take place before our eyes is an assumption not every philosopher has accepted in history. And though Descartes accepted it to a degree, some of his disciples challenged it and challenged it with a vengeance. And so the problem that we're dealing with here philosophically, and it becomes a major problem when we deal with questions of theology, is the relationship between what's called primary causality and secondary causality. Now, what's the difference? Primary causality refers to the ultimate source of power for every action. And classically and historically, The Christian faith affirms that the ultimate power in the universe by which and upon which every other power depends, not only originally, but moment by moment, is the power of God. Remember the Apostle Paul, when he debated with the Athenian philosophers, said that it was in God we live and move and have our being. And you recall when we looked at the early stages of philosophy in the pre-Socratic era that one of the major questions that philosophers were discussing was the question of motion. What makes anything move? Which is really a question of causality. And so the Christian view has always been that God is not only the prime mover in the sense of the first mover, but that no motion can take place in this world ever. No power can be exerted at any time apart from the power of God. That God does not create a universe that functions or operates independently from His moment-to-moment empowering of it. The Christian idea is there is no inherent power in nature but that nature's power is always dependent upon the primary source of power, who is God. Now, people don't think like that in the 20th century. Here, a secular view of the world has virtually captured the thinking of people today. Now, again, the theologians of history have agreed that God exercises His power not alone. They wouldn't say 
that God is throwing the piece of chalk when that piece of chalk goes again to Roger, or that God is throwing it back to me, but rather I am really exercising power. I am a causal agent, but my power and the causal power that I transfer here is secondary. So that the idea was that secondary causality is real, but always dependent on the primary source of power, who is God. Now, as Descartes was wrestling with the question of the relationship between thought and action, between extension and non-extension, he, at the same time, is speaking about what we would call secondary causality. Now, some of his most famous disciples, Malebranche, for example, and Golinks, another one, in France, challenged his theory of interactionism and replaced it with a theory that really had a very short life in the history of philosophy, and they differed at minor points between themselves, but their basic position was called occasionalism. Occasionalism. And this becomes super important in the next century. What occasionalism meant to the disciples of Descartes was this that when I think that I'm causing this chalk to fly in the air to Roger and he catches it, ah, he missed it that time because I faked him out, that really all this is what is going on here is that I'm exercising no power whatsoever. That the movement of my arm and the release of my fingers from this piece of chalk is not the cause of the chalk's moving. The only causal power for the occasionalist was the power of God. And it's simply though it seems as though I am the agent that's making this chalk fly across the room, really it's God who's making that chalk move across the room. And at the same time, He's moving my arm, and the movement of my arm and the releasing of my fingers from the chalk is not the cause of the chalk's movement, only the appearance of a cause. It's only the occasion that happens to happen at the same second that God invisibly and in a hidden way, metaphysically, is actually doing all the work and all the action. This raises all kinds of questions about moral responsibility, about free will and determinism and the like. But all I want to say to finish up today is the occasionalists X'd out the whole concept of secondary causality. And they did it for theological considerations to rescue science from looking at the universe in a godless way. So this becomes a very heated point of dispute for the next 200 years after the point has been raised.